The text for the sermon comes from the epistle. We beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Our lectionary today gives us two meditations on perseverance. One, an exhortation to pursue sanctity without ceasing, and the other, an example of that persistence in action. This seems just right for Lent too, uh, when the initial enthusiasm for our Lenten resolutions may have started to wane. Taken together, our two texts affirm that regardless of what our current stage of holiness happens to be, we all urgently need to pursue Jesus. In our epistle text, St. Paul beseeches and exhorts an already faithful parish not to give in to complacency, but rather to abound more and more in holiness. By contrast, the gospel places before us the example of a pagan woman's unflagging pursuit of Jesus, in spite of his apparent indifference. So perseverance, in other words, is the antidote both to complacency and to despair. Let's look at the epistle. Given the urgency with which St. Paul writes, you might think that the church at Thessalonica was in a bad state, but that's not true. This is not a church on the edge of apostasy, as in the letter to the Galatians, uh, nor is it a church that, as best we can tell, struggles with rampant sexual sin, like the church at Corinth. To the contrary, the first two chapters of 1 Thessalonians are filled with unqualified praise for their faithfulness. As the great Anglo-Catholic divine John Keeble writes, St. Paul seems hardly to know how to say enough of their faith and charity or of the noble and self-denying way in which they received the gospel. And you can see evidence of this in the passage for today. St. Paul's exhortation is not a call to reverse course or change direction, but rather to abound more and more. So the message is not repent and turn, but rather keep it up. So if they're already on the right path, why does St. Paul write so urgently? He seems a little bit uptight almost. Both our epistle and gospel readings suggest that your current spiritual state, where you are now, in some ways matters less than where you are headed. Are you abounding more and more? Or are you stagnating in a false sense of self-satisfaction? As Keeble says, one indispensable mark of true repentance is a daily, unwearied endeavor to improve. Now, if you grew up in the kinds of Protestant churches that I did, you might even now feel haunted by the specter of works righteousness as you read the text. St. Paul is not, of course, inviting the Thessalonians to try to earn their salvation. When St. Paul says elsewhere to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he is not inviting you to spend your days trying to figure out if you are, in fact, saved, nor to expend a lot of effort trying to get saved. Rather, it means to live out your salvation, right? Live out the reality of your regeneration, which was never something you did, dead as you were in your transgressions, but which was done to you at your baptism. 
There's no better time than Lent to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to renounce complacency, to renounce any sense we might have that we've done enough to be a good person. Thank you very much. Let us learn instead to abound more and more, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Our gospel text also urges persistence. Three characters populate the story in the gospel. Jesus, the Canaanite woman, and the disciples. These disciples, like the Thessalonians to whom St. Paul wrote, are also following Jesus. But the four Gospels each provide us a number of examples of their pride, their complacency and self-satisfaction. These disciples are not in any danger of having too much empathy for the weak and downtrodden. In Matthew 20, we find them as part of a crowd shooing away these blind men who are crying out for mercy. In chapter 19, they sternly admonish those who had the nerve to bring children to Jesus. And in chapter 14, which is right before our story, they ask Jesus to send the hungry crowds away to go buy food for themselves. Likewise, the foreign woman crying out for mercy for her demon-possessed daughter in our text appears not to provoke compassion, but irritation. Send her away, they say, for she crieth after us. The Gospel of Mark identifies this woman as Syrophoenician, or Greek. But in Matthew, she is anachronistically described as a woman of Canaan. This is actually pretty strange, because by the time of Jesus, Canaan didn't exist anymore, and it hadn't for centuries. So calling her a Canaanite would be kind of like referring to Germans as Visigoths. It's a little weird. <coughs> it's a peculiar identification, and it's deliberate, and it's telling as the original Jewish audience of St. Matthew's Gospel would have immediately recognized, Canaanites were the distinctly unchosen peoples whom the Hebrews, God's elect, had displaced in the Promised Land. So this anachronistic label only highlights her status as an outsider to, or even an enemy of God's covenant. And this passage also challenges us to make sense of its disturbing portrayal of Jesus. We don't expect our Lord to call someone a dog. There are various attempts to soften this ethnic slur by pointing out that it was common Jewish practice to refer to Gentiles or dogs. Jesus uses the diminutive form of dogs, little dogs or puppies. The context implies household pets rather than strays. To be honest, these don't really do much for me. If I'm the Canaanite woman, I'm not getting a great deal of comfort from being a housebroken dog. <laughs> so what then do we make of Jesus in this story? I believe Jesus is enacting a real-life parable. Parables, you probably already know, always illustrate something surprising about the kingdom of God. Often parables seem at first to reinforce the hearer's understanding of the world, their biases and preconceptions. But then, at the end, they tend to unexpectedly upend those very presuppositions. Likewise, in our story, Jesus initially reinforces his disciples' sense of superiority. After all, it is his complete silence in the face of the woman's cries that encourages them to ask Jesus to send her away. The disciples' reaction to his comment about children and dogs is not recorded, 
but given their general lack of empathy throughout the Gospels and the widespread Jewish attitudes towards Gentiles at the time, I can easily imagine them nodding along in self-satisfaction. But then, suddenly and dramatically, Jesus reverses course, crying out, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. This Canaanite woman in our text is one of only two people whom Jesus specifically highlights for the greatness of their faith. And the other, from Matthew 8, was a Roman centurion. Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Recall, too, that in the story of St. Peter walking on water, a chapter before our text, Jesus gave him the unpleasant nickname, O thou of little faith. And I have no doubt this statement is ringing in Peter's ears as he hears Jesus uphold the great faith of this woman, this Canaanite dog. Speaking of which, I suspect I'm not the only one who has often felt the need to correct Jesus when it comes to his evaluation of St. Peter's faith. Right? The man steps out of a boat into stormy seas to walk on water, and that counts as little faith. What could possibly be little about such faith? The answer is that it didn't last. St. Peter did not persist. So what we need, in other words, is not only faith powerful enough to step into stormy seas and walk towards Christ, but also resilient enough to persevere when Christ's back seems turned to us. Let this Lent, then, be a time in which you practice perseverance in prayer, in fasting, and in almsgiving. A successful Lenten fast may not be one in which we never fail. For many of us, it probably won't be that. But a Lenten resolution is ultimately only a failure when we give up, when we throw in the towel and we admit defeat. Instead, let us recommit ourselves as often as necessary to the purposes for which we fast in the first place, to grow further from sin and closer to Jesus. Great faith is persistent faith. The Canaanite woman could not, of course, have known that she was part of a real-life parable. All that she would have experienced in the moment was rejection and alienation. And I think it can be helpful to imagine the scene from her perspective. She is alone amidst a crowd of foreign men. The text says that she came out of the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, which suggests that she's, she has journeyed to find Jesus. So she's probably dusty and dirty from travel. She is a Gentile crying out for aid from a man she identifies in explicitly Jewish terms. O Lord, thou son of David. Our cultural distance from her can sometimes mask how strange that scene must have been. Um, it was inappropriate for her to be alone in the first place, and it was doubly inappropriate for her to be shouting after some man. And the text gives us just a little bit of a hint of that. The behold, and behold, a woman of Canaan comes out. It means look, as in look at this strange sight. So it's no wonder the disciples find her a little bit pathetic. Yet her vulnerability does not stop her for a moment. Driven as she is by love for her daughter and drawn by faith to Jesus, she is clearly a desperate woman. And what seems to be the fruit of her courage? 
Jesus first ignores her, then denies her right to healing, and then implicitly calls her a Gentile dog. None of this deters her. We don't know how or precisely what the Canaanite woman knows of Jesus beyond the messianic title that she gives him, but we do know that she worships at his feet. One preacher comments, nothing more is required of a sinner than that he should know himself to be such and to act accordingly. She knew herself to be outside of God's covenant, just as we all were once dead in trespasses. And she knew that her only hope lay in Jesus. If we find ourselves confronted by an apparently silent savior, are we willing to be pathetic and desperate? Are we willing to humble ourselves in pursuit of Jesus, just as Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross? The Canaanite woman's blend of humility, need, and perseverance is something for each of us to emulate this Lent. Her persistence echoes the demand of Jacob when he wrestles with God. I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. Like her and like Jacob, we must cling to the promises of God, even in periods of aridity, when we seem to be wrestling rather than communing with God, when our experience of him seems marked more by indifference than welcome, when our prayers seem answered by nothing but silence. Or perhaps today you identify more with the Thessalonians, knowing God's favor and tasting his goodness. You may not be in danger of despair, but you are surely in danger of complacency and self-satisfaction. May this Lent be a season in which you renew an unstinting pursuit of Christ with the same determination as the Canaanite woman. Wherever you find yourself today, these two Lenten texts urge you to persevere. For when we persist in seeking God's mercy and in pursuing his holiness, we will receive his grace. We beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.